name is James Laxton, and this is the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome, everybody, to the Cinematography Podcast. Uh, Ilya and I are in separate cities, which never happens, but uh, there's a good reason for that, and it's because Ilya is at the Sundance Film Festival currently. That's true. Uh, Sundance 2020, and I'm doing all kinds of interviews with very, very talented filmmakers, and I can't wait to bring them to you. Yeah, we, we'll we'll probably do some kind of a Sundance wrap-up or at least discuss it in close focus or something after you're back, because like right now you're in the thick of it. You're in the middle of Sundance, so uh, so uh, you, you have no perspective whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, two days, two more days of uh, interviews and screenings and interviews and screenings. And I can already tell you, like, wow, from what's happened so far. Wow. It's a it's a really good year this year. There are important films being made and shown, not just good films being made, but like literally, I would say uh, world stage important films. And I can't wait to uh, to share all that. Dude, I can't wait to hear all about it. So uh, who is on the show today? Today is a fantastic cinematographer, James Laxton. Speaking of Sundance, because he's he's played Sundance, correct? Uh, that well, yeah, wasn't Moonlight a Sundance movie? I know it was Telluride, but I believe it was also. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, uh, well, we'll find out. Um, yeah, James Laxton, uh, amazing cinematographer. Yeah, uh, cinematographer uh, we... of the Best Picture Academy Award, Moonlight, and uh, most recently the uh, Academy Award nominated If Beale Street Could Talk. And by the way, can I say, super nice guy. I don't really have any specific expectations when uh, cinematographers walk into the interview. You know, I'll do my research or whatever, but you don't know what kind of person they're going to be. And I just remember him as a, a warm, humble, like a tr- like a true artist, but just a very accessible, nice guy uh, with a lot of uh, great thoughts about his own process. 100% agree. A- incredibly nice guy. Well, one of the nicest we've ever spoken with. I think you just called most of our guests bastards, but that's okay. That's okay. They can I, take I, it. I did not. I said one of, one of. We've had many, <laughs> many, many. So anyone who's ever been on the show is like, am I also one of those? I don't know. I don't know, man. So uh, today for our close focus, we wanted to talk about the short run TV phenomenon, which is something that I think is kind of coming about as a combination of premium television and streaming services, and it's kind of shaping the way television works. And what made me think of this was that literally today or yesterday, Damon Lindelof announced that uh, there he is not going to do a second season of Watchmen. So if there is a second, there is no planned second season of Watchmen. Watchmen was, I believe by all metrics, a huge hit. I know it was definitely a water cooler show. Uh, there was nobody that I deal with on a regular basis who could withstand not talking about uh, Watchmen the second I saw them. Anyone who was into Watchmen wanted to talk about it. It is, I think, a landmark TV show, and I think it's honestly kind of amazing that it's only going to be a one-and-done season. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, too, because that series had so much that had so much buzz, had so much talk, had... It, at some points, uh, there, one I episode. I would say resistance. I think that there were a lot of like when I. Well, I, I think did I, I say resistance? 
Uh, you didn't. I, oh, okay. I I believe that there was a little bit of resistance because I am a fan of the comic book and I'm a fan of the original movie that was uh, shot by Larry, Larry Fong. Fong yeah. And I remember Larry was the one that told me they were turning it into a TV series when we interviewed him. And I'm like, why? Why would you do that? Like, the movie is perfect and stands on its own. And then I saw the show and I'm like, oh, I get it. They had something completely different to say with this with this world. And, uh, and, and to me, as amazing as any spinoff I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really great. And I think, though, that maybe some of it is is that it's impossible to get the band back together. <laughs> maybe when it's over, it's like, you know, everyone kind of came together for a thing and no one wants to repeat the process. Or maybe it's, uh, it's I think there might be a willingness. And I think some stories could be finite and we don't need them to go on ind- indefinitely. That is sort of the American thing, though. If you've got something that works... The next step is to figure out how you can exploit as much money out of that as possible. That's true. And, and hey, look, I'm okay with that to a degree, but I appreciate a show like Breaking Bad, for instance, that that had an endpoint in its sights when it started. Uh, Game of Thrones, obviously, and uh, that was a long running running show, though, too. That th- yeah, that game. went on for a while, but there was always an end game. And I think that you know, like over in uh, the UK across the pond uh, they've been regularly making short run TV shows that you know only last like six or seven episodes or fewer and that's o- that's okay you know like the story doesn't need to go on and on and on forever and one of the things that we've been seeing with streaming specifically on Netflix is Netflix is starting to have a tendency to have a show that's on for two seasons and then goes away yeah like I just uh, another another one I just read about was on uh, Mindhunter, the David Fincher series. They just released all the talent from their contracts. They've done two seasons of it, and that might be it. Hmm. You know, I think it's really interesting when when there is a great series too that at least is uh, critically loved or beloved by some folk. And in the past, in the in the past of you know before we reached peak TV, there were so many things that had to happen for you to get your renewal. All yeah. these things ha- had to happen. And uh, like I'm thinking back to the, did you ever see Action? I know you I do remember it, yes. Yeah, I know you don't typically like uh, movies about the industry or Hollywood or anything like that. I, I, somebody but, gave me as, actually, <laughs> our composer, Kazal Atrakshi. How, a, how as, do we go every episode with, you know. As, we ha- As a, a birthday <laughs> gift. He's, he's, sort of, he's sort of the zealot of this show. Uh, but Kaze gave me a DVD of action. I think I had never kind of expressed my antipathy for TV shows and movies about the film industry. And uh, he gave it to me on DVD years ago. I guess the fact that it was on DVD gives you an idea of how long ago it was. And you know what? I watched it and I enjoyed it. I think that it's uh, it's a good example of a show that could have had and seemed to have uh, the potential to go much longer. But there was some some lack of uh, willingness or ratings or something. Well, so. well, and also that's in a world where you're dependent on ratings. And when you're Netflix, for instance, Netflix obviously has all the metrics of of how old you are and how tall you are and you know what your favorite color is and what car you drive and also exactly how many minutes of making of a murderer you watched and uh they know everything about you but, but now they, hbo knows that too for everyone who watched chernobyl exactly now, now they, 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 but they, they get to decide we're going to do mindhunter we're going to do mindhunter indefinitely we're going to do it for the next 10 years just because we like it and we want to keep David Fincher happy and we want David Fincher to make stuff for us and this is a show that he loves making or you know, they're not dependent on ratings because they're a technology company fundamentally. HBO is becoming that because how many people are HBO Now subscribers? A lot. Yeah. And soon to be HBO Max subscribers. Yeah. Exactly. And and so once that transition has happened, you know, HBO has always been a subscriber driven network. Like it's never, but, but, but I do think ratings had something to do with it. But Chernobyl, you bring up, is another good example because there's 
absolutely no way you could do a second season of Chernobyl. And oh, yet just they, wait. They greenlit it. <laughs> <laughs> just you wait. They're, they're, they will find a way. They'll do Chernobyl 2, Fukushima. <laughs> or it could very well be, or it could be the prequel, or it could be, you know, oh. No, I, but like Chernobyl to me is one of the things that's perfect about it is it just does feel like a closed loop. It doesn't feel like it needs to be longer. There or, wasn't a lot of unanswered questions. Exactly. Yeah. It, it takes, it, it, it is a, it's a finite story. And I actually think that like back in the day, when a show like Seinfeld, for instance, would decide, the people making it decided, like, we're done. You know, obviously they all became, you know, multi-gajillionaires off of doing that show. And then they could decide that they were tired of doing it whenever. And they decided to stop doing it while it was still bringing in the ratings. I'm actually glad. I'm glad because there is a certain amount of satisfaction, especially now as we've reached peak TV or not, yeah. I should say we're in the, did you hear Peacock is about to launch? Like Peacock, July, something oh, like yeah, that yeah. now it's going to, is going to be coming. And I think that there, even some people have a little early access to it right now. I think that you can subscribe for, or it's available now for Comcast customers, I think is what it is. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's one more service and they've got a tremendous back catalog of stuff that you can watch. If you want to go back and watch all of, um, I'm going to go with ALF. Yes. I don't know if it's ALF. I don't, was that in, I don't know if I don't know if ALF was NBC. No, but, uh, but there are, they do have some like big shows. I think like the office, the office is on there and that's going to be a big uh, tent pole for them and, and television, but, uh, and long, long, long running series that, uh, are successful. But I think that in this day and age where maybe people don't want to then wade through nine years, eight years, or in the case of the Simpsons. I just want to go to the last yeah. episode of Cheers and see how it ended. That's all I need. <laughs> That's all you just need. <laughs> or The Sopranos yeah. or, or something like that. I think that more final, finite stories might be all in our future. Well, I, I, and I just think that that's better for everyone. I mean, and I can say like as a podcast listener there, and I'm not going to name names, but there are podcasts that I loved the first season of. And then when they came back for a second season, they just could not recapture whatever the magic was. And, uh, and that happens, I think a lot in TV and, and, you know, so that's why a lot of over, over the years, a lot of shows go out with a whimper. I mean, there are shows like NCIS that are just designed to be made forever when one procedural the, yeah well, yeah when a character dies of when an actor dies of old age they just replace him with the younger version of that guy and or woman and let that let that that person die too you know they just go on and on and on hello soap operas yeah yeah well it's 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 sort of is like that i guess in a way you know uh, or, or meet the press but yeah uh but i appreciated i appreciated damon lindelof of all people you know, saying like, nope, I said what I needed to say with Watchmen and I'm done with Watchmen. So if Watchmen continues, it will not be with him. And uh, I think that's pretty interesting. I don't know. I, I, I do too. And I think that uh, we're probably going to be seeing more of that. And as a viewer, I appreciate that. And now without further ado, here is my interview with awesome cinematographer, James Laxton. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in delightful Burbank, California with uh, cinematographer James Laxton. Thank you so much for coming out. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. An amazing career. And uh, we're going to get into some of the stuff. But I always start off with my first question, which is kind of designed to to get us talking about just what you do, mm-hmm. uh, which is that a long time ago, a friend of mine convinced me uh, incorrectly that cinematographers either start with an idea of lighting or composition, but but it's, it's not always uh, both. Although uh-huh. I think every answer is appropriate. I keep thinking about just shit-canning this question, but the way I keep asking it mm. is... Uh, when you read a script, yeah. like what is it that you see? No, I think that's a really good question. Actually, it's it, it, there, I do think that there are sort of subcategories of different 
variances of of DPs definitions of their own work in many ways or where they come from. So I think, you know, it takes all kinds. I think I do see to kind of get to what your answer to answer your question a bit. I think I probably see in camera mm-hmm. more than I see in light when I first start reading a script or, con- or conceiving of a project in some fashion. I think that stems from some, somewhat my background and how I've come into this uh, space. Um, going to film school, graduated in 2003. It was the sort of era of film was on the, you know, sort of dipping a little bit and digital cinema was coming in. There was this sort of moment in time where young post-collegiate kids were gravitating towards, you know, Canon XL1s and HVX yes. 200s and things like that. And I was one of them. Yeah. And I, you know, save a bit, bit of money from some odd jobs and purchase one of these cameras, find some friends who wanted to make some projects. You didn't really have lights, but you could get this camera. You can go out in the streets of whatever city or town you were in and start kind of creating stories on, on screen. And I think because of that beginnings of that sort of timeline of where I was, the camera became somewhat of a focus for me, first of all. But it like if, stays, if, if you're talking about like the XL1, which did have interchangeable lenses, but the sure? HVX200, which did not. No. Um, you know, when you're talking about composition, you're kind of mm. talking about composition with, with kind of a fixed lens that comes on those cameras. I mean, it's a zoom sure. lens, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a, you could call it limited, I guess of uh, some options but like anything sometimes within limitation becomes great invention and that's that was true i think that's tr- certainly true for for my first film that i made w- f- you know with a director i work with a lot these days barry jenkins we made a film called medicine for melancholy on that camera which uh, one uh the hvx 200 we had this it's a great camera it's a great ca- <laughs> and we had that red rock adapter with uh, oh, ca- yeah. with uh, some you know some lenses about on ebay there were these Nikon sets and for, for very little money, you mm-hmm. know, got those delivered to the house and put this sort of Frankenstein beast together. Uh, that was the first camera that you could do slow motion on, as I recall, like, at that at that budget level. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, we got one of these things and, and that that was Medicine for Melancholy sort of impetus. Um, we knew we wanted to make a story. We didn't know how to do it. Uh, we, we weren't sort of gifted means that were more traditional of how to make a film, let's say. Mm-hmm. But we had some some <laughs> gumption and some uh, some some friends that really sort of felt passionate about giving it a shot. And um, I think in 18 days made that film. So Wow. So I think because of that background a little bit, I do sort of start with camera and start with lenses and, like you said, composition and things like that. Were you a film school uh, person? Yeah. Where'd you go? I went to Florida State uh, University Film School. I went to the University of Central Florida. Oh, very so, nice. Yeah. Not too far. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a whole gang of us down there. Um, I mean, you know, Barry and I went to school there. I shot Barry's short films since we were about 20, so a while back Oh, now. wow. But a lot of us, you know, the, the whole Moonlight clan, the Joy McMillan, uh, Nat Sanders, Adela Romansky, a bunch of other people on the, on the, on the set, and, and we've continued to work with them since then. Um, a guest of yours previous, Mike Galakis, went to school there as well. So it's a, and oh, David Mitchell as well. It follows, and uh, you know, and um, yeah, and the silver like. Anyway, a bunch of us went to school there, and sort of, I don't know what what happened in that sort of few years of all these sort of crazy kids running around that uh, that city in uh, northern Florida, but. Something was in the water, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we've been we've been doing all right, and um, just I did. I think there was just some sense of you know have to make it happen uh, that that sort of fell upon all of our shoulders a bit. 
Well, the vibe that I always heard from FSU was, you know, going to going to UCF, which mm-hmm. is not a competitor to FSU. I mean, not really competing, but it was like UCF was sort of modeled on an NYU kind of a thing, which was mm-hmm. you're on your own. Right. And the the vibe was yeah. always that FSU is more modeled on a USC kind of a model where the school uh, supported you yeah, making very the much. films. Yeah, it was interesting. I agree. Now, that, and that was sort of part of why I wanted to go there in many ways. Every student that was making a film had the same means, which is kind of great as well. So you, mm. we, everyone was given the same amount of film stock, same amount of days of shoot. We all crewed on, on each other's films to the same crew, so to speak. And it was somewhat you know, egalitarian that way. And um, I guess, yeah, it, it was very much so, to your point, uh, I think, supported by the school itself, for sure. Well, when we uh, talk to people who went to film school, I always mm-hmm. want to ask, like, so in in this day and age when you could go out and buy a DSLR and yeah. have some kind of edit, you know, have sure. resolve on your laptop, yeah. what's the advantage yeah. of film school? And you're, you're kind of going there, I'm assuming they're still shooting film in 2000. They were. We, yeah, we shot 16, for sure. Yeah, we <clears> learned on film. What's the advantage of going yeah. to film school? And, I, you know, obviously you're still working with people who you went to film school that's with. That's the advantage. Yeah. In my mind, that's the exact advantage. It's the, it's the space in which you get to meet people of like minds, hopefully, every day go to, the, go to a place and talk about film with them for the, yeah. whatever. It's, for us, it was a two-and-a-half-year program. For some people, it's longer. And it's a structured environment where you get to do that every day. And yeah. I don't think there's a, I mean, unless you have a, a group of friends that are committed like that, it's hard to find that sort of same structure. So for me, it's about that. I mean, I, I think it's less about the lessons, less about the, uh, you call it less about the program or the education. Mm-hmm. It's more about the people, I would say. So let's back up even a little bit further and sure. say like, when was it that you first kind of got the spark to mm-hmm. shoot? And, you know, can you remember anything about that period of your life? Yeah. So <clears throat> it's interesting. I come somewhat from a family of, uh, within the industry a little bit. My mother's a costume designer. Uh, her name is Aggie Rogers, and she's had a very sort of strong career. We could say like in the film world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's. <laughs> you know, I do like to brag, brag about my mom because it's kind of fun. So her first film she ever did was uh, American Graffiti. Whoa! And then she did The Conversation, and then she did Return of the Jedi, uh, and it goes on. So she's <laughs> she's done well for herself. So were you like a were you around? I mean, obviously you weren't around for I American. I was born. I was a, I was alive for Jedi. Mm-hmm. Uh, 81 I was born so I was a, she, uh, when I, I, was, I was like one or under one when that happened so I have, I have pictures of me on in the costume department running around being silly as a kid <laughs> but what, is, what, what I'm trying to get at basically is that I sort of you know would, grew up on sets on some kind I don't mean say in, in any sort of intense way but you know if mom was working on a project in such and such town Christmas vacations spring breaks you know, a summer break whatever it might be we'd, we'd be we'd be going to visit mom wherever and she was where were you growing up though where was where, San Francisco is okay. where I grew up but not a lot gets shot there <laughs> so you know it was a lot of traveling and, and mom did a lot of that as a kid uh, well that actually makes sense that she would have the George Lucas connection exactly right yeah. correct yeah so spending time as a you know from zero to high school you know at a certain age my mom would sort of walk me back to the camera truck to the camera assistants and ask them to like just take care of me for the day and I'd, <laughs> <laughs> I'd walk up the up the gate and sort of sit on cases and watch what they were doing and really sort of just like just just like observe really and um I think that was sort of I would call that maybe like 10 11 12 era I think at that time you're just interested in like kind of toys and weird gadgets and, and that's camera department and that's camera department and so I think initially just gravitated towards that as a child <laughs> Uh, not knowing what was happening, obviously, but just, and then I think the first, I would say the first thing I would, I, I would tangibly say was 
as a kid, as kids do, they're really sort of susceptible to environments. And I think the film set, the set itself became this thing that I remember sort of being in awe of. Uh, in that, at that age and sort of witnessing, wa- watching the actors walk on and like the crew, the, the volume of the set would sort of go down to a whisper. And as a kid, it just became kind of exciting a little bit and sort of <laughs> the witnessing a take and hearing that director call action, call cut, chaos ensues, every department's running around addressing changes and, and, then, and then going back to, okay, and action and then quiet and then the performance. And I think all those sort of rituals as a kid watching that was really impactful um and i think my that would be my first sort of i would say moment or or description of what i first sort of engaged with on, on, uh, as as part of what filmmaking is do you do you remember any of the specific films that you you where you were hanging out with the camera department yeah uh, for sure um i mean i mean i remember the first lens i looked through was mr holland's opus wow and i can st- <laughs> That's awesome. And I just still remember it. I mean, it was, it was a scene in the band room. I don't know if it was a certain particular scene specifically, but I remember looking through the lens, you know, someone propping me up on that little seat, bringing the eyepiece down to my level and just peeking through and looking at that piano. And I can still think, I can still like kind of uh, viscerally remember that actually. And it was already lit and everything. Yeah, it was already lit. It was beautiful. The sun was, the light was pushing through. I should know this thing. off the top of my head, but I don't. Who is the cinematographer on that? I believe it was Oliver Wood, who I don't know if I've seen since then or run into, but it, I, I wish I could sort of, I guess, hopefully at some point <laughs> say thank you for that because I do sort of still remember it. It's I like, think he works with Ilya, so maybe one day you could, uh, okay, Ilya could say like, hey, me he, up, fuck he's, me up. he's here. <laughs> Come on over. Cool. Yeah. So how old would you have been when that? Uh, gosh, in my mind, I'm 14 or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But but there, yeah, I mean, that era of any child's life is quite sort of impactful, I'd say. And so just being exposed to all these different things around that, I think, was quite but know, exciting. Notwithstanding that you were hanging out with the camera department because mm-hmm. they had all of the best Tinker Toys. Sure. Um, not, not so much for a 14-year-old. But um, what was it that drew you into camera specifically? Because mm-hmm. you're around the whole set. So yeah. you could have been like, I want to do practical effects. I want to be sure. a director. I want to do, you know, there's a thousand things you could have wanted to do. I don't really know. But what I think it is, it's that's a hard thing to define because it's sort of like, we could probably talk about that for like four more hours. In the, in I, got, I got the time now. <laughs> yeah. I'm out of the house. But... <laughs> But I, but I think it's basically something that's somewhat subconscious. The kind of person who I am, I think I, I don't know that I would be suited for directing. Mm-hmm. I'm probably a little too quiet. I'm probably a little too observant. And I like watching and absorbing things in a way that I don't know is suited for direction. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of facets as to why that is. But I just think in a weird way, I knew I just sort of it just fit and it's hard to, hard to explain. There's something about cinematography that just fit my personality quite effortlessly. There's something about, I think, how much I love different experiences that aren't my own that I think fits quite well with cinematography and not writing, for example. Mm-hmm. Writing is very personal. You're putting yourself out there. What I enjoy more than that, in fact, is absorbing someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite a lot about what cinematography is is somewhat of an interpretation of a script, obviously, but even more so someone else's culture, um, you know, way of life, language, et cetera. And there's something about that that has just always clicked for me in some way. 
So uh, by the time you go to FSU, mm. are you already on the track of wanting to be a cinematographer? I think I was. Yeah, I mean, you, you do everything there in the program. You write, you direct, you do second AD, and you do craft service. You second do, AD. You do everything. Like I think They're you're, like, you're, I'm sorry, we can't let you first AD. Cause <laughs> well, that, no, they don't. Because I mean, you, That's skilled, but I, you, can, you can make the, cr- <laughs> the call sheets. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, you know, as a junior in the program, you do that for the senior class. And that mm-hmm. was sort of how the structure was. It was sort of it's like a studio. That way. It very much was, yeah, for sure. Um, so you do everything in that program, which is something I really, really loved, and I think I got a lot out of being able to do production design you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. attempt it anyway and, <laughs> and uh, get your feet wet, attempt something, try to manufacture a, a, a gag for a special effect that someone wants to see on their, on their project, done all those things. But I think in the meanwhile, I, in the back of my mind, always knew that I had a focus and something I wanted to really spend time doing when I was in that program for two years. Yeah. Which is cinematography. And uh, you meet, you meet Barry Jenkins there. Did you meet anybody else there who you sure. who you still work with a lot? Well, yeah. I mean, that group of people still work on Barry Jenkins projects. As in terms of other directors, yes and no. I met David Mitchell, who directed It Follows. I shot his first film that he made after going to school. This is before It Follows. It was a film called The Myth of the American Sleepover. This is 2010, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's a <laughs> bunch of us that sort of click together and still work. I'd say Barry probably is my most common collaborator well, for sure. But and like, how many people more. are in a class at at that? Small, point? yeah. I mean, it's I think it's thirty. Yeah, yeah. So out yeah. of out of thirty, the fact that that you, <laughs> you know four couple. or five of them yeah. are, are actually still working is not a bad. It's impressive. Percentage. Yeah. No, no. It's it's a testament to the program for sure. Agreed. So you came from San. Did you move from San Francisco to Florida to I go did. to school, and then did yeah. you go back when you were done? I did. I went back to San Francisco. This is like the sort of early two thousand four. Uh, drive back across country, and more or less start doing a couple of things. Working for my dad as in in. Uh, in carpentry and then also slowly going into the assistant route of camera assisting. Mm-hmm. Uh, second scene and loading primarily, a little bit of firsting. And then, you know, that was what I was doing for a few years. All the meanwhile, you know, on weekends or taking a month off and shooting a project and things like that is my, you know, sort of between those second scene and, and loading roles. Well, that's an interesting thing too, because I, I sort of feel like there's kind of two approaches to people trying to establish themselves as DPs and some of them go the camera assistant route and slowly, slowly work their way yeah. up, you know, to operator to blah, 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 yeah. you know, uh, and some people are like, fuck it, I'm going straight to DP. Yeah. But it sounds like you, I did both. <laughs> you, did, you did both at the same time. I did both because I didn't know I could do either one solely. Mm-hmm. How many, how, how long did you spend as a, as an assistant before you were like, okay, I don't need to do this anymore. Um, that would have been years 2004 through 2008. So four years of that. It's a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah, I sort of did both. I mean, in, I, you know, in 2008 was the year we shot Men's of Melancholy. That movie went and played, the, it premiered at South by Southwest the next spring um, and then did a festival run after that, a bunch of all the regional festivals around. It played Toronto as well. It played, played London. It played a lot of like pretty prestigious festivals actually yeah, yeah. that year. It got Barry and I both Spirit Award nominations which then ensues becomes, you know, an agent and sort of deals and things like that. And it is really, I mean, like I'm always interested about that. Like, you know, cause we've talked to people who like won a big award yeah, and then like, for instance, we we spoke with Ellen Curis and obviously we're talking about a very different time in the early nineties, but it's like, she won the cinematography award at Sundance. And I'm like, so I assume your phone just started (laughs) ringing off the hook. She's like, well, it's interesting. It did not ring off the hook. The agents became interested, interested, 
But as you soon learn, agents are very important and they play a massive role and actually have a, <laughs> they work very, very hard. So I don't have a lot of negative things to say about them. However, I don't necessarily think they just get you jobs, in quote. Yeah. Right? So, so they get you into rooms, maybe. They, yeah, yeah, exactly. They can get you into rooms, they get you a meeting, and they can sort of help and they can push and they can, they do a lot for, for, for young um, aspiring filmmakers. But they, the phone doesn't just automatically ring at that moment. Um, and so 2009 through 2000. 12, 13, 14, those are hard years. And they were years where I'd sort of decided, okay, I'm going to really make a push for this. I'm not going to assist anymore because I want to really focus and take this opportunity to really try my best to make this work because mm-hmm. it's, you know, a dream and it's what I want to be doing for my life and a career. Um, and I sort of need it to function. Uh, I didn't think if I kept assisting and I kept loading and things like that, that I was going to be giving myself the best chance to, you know, whatever, to be successful. Yeah. So I sort of, those were sort of some salad years around in there. <laughs> um, but doing some cool stuff in the meantime. I mean, you know, I, I made a film called uh, Camp X-Ray that I was really proud of. Went to Sundance, made a few more films like California Solo for a Good Time Call. These are all like really sort of between 500000 and one point whatever $2 million movies. Mm-hmm. And I was really proud of it. I was, I was sort of feeling like that was my way I was going to sort of jump up the ladder. I was incrementally just get into the business. I didn't, I never saw myself as someone who was going to, you know, do a big breakout thing. <laughs> you know, uh, I was watching other DPs. Jokes on you. You kind of <laughs> did. Well, I mean, <laughs> but it took a while. I yeah. mean, it, it wasn't like I shot my first film and then Moonlight came out. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It took a long time. And I think that's something that it's interesting. <laughs> People talk about yeah, the Moonlight as this big breakout. And, and they're not wrong. And I understand why they describe it that way. Barry's been working. I mean, between Menace of Melancholy and Moonlight was what seven years or something like that. It's not effortless that he's he was grinding through that. Those oh, years. of course. And I'm not trying to say that like effortlessly anything happens. Right. But it's like you know you're chugging along making five hundred thousand dollar movies, yeah. and yeah. then like one of the smaller movies you make ends up winning Doing the best well. picture. Doing well. Yeah. <laughs> winning best picture, <laughs> um, which was lovely, and it was a big surprise to all of us. Obviously, we were very proud of it. Uh-huh. You know, leaving Miami, we just felt. I mean, I, I'll speak for myself. I felt like I was very proud of what we'd done. My expectations broadly were hopefully this gets into Sundance or something like that. Mm. People see the film and people like it. And hopefully just another sort of moment in the careers of us, of all of ours, where we can sort of look back and be proud of something. But it's, you know, a path on the way to something else. Well, that, that was yeah. that's kind of one of my questions and you mm. sort of just answered it. But I, I sort of wanted to ask when you got to Moonlight. Yeah. Was there kind of a halo around the thing? Like like this is a little different. Mm. This is a little special. I mean, the truth is I always feel that I about working for Barry. I mean, ever since I've known Barry, I've always sort of walked onto a set with him and always felt it was special. Mm-hmm. I don't know why particularly, but it's always sort of how I associate my engagement and my creative process with him is something that I think is very special for mm-hmm. me. So I think it was it was different, I would say that for sure. I, I don't know that I had the same sort of feelings or emotions going to Miami that I did on previous projects with other directors that maybe it was my first time working with them or, or I didn't know, you know, just didn't know them as well as I know Barry. And so, because I know Barry so well, it's just, I think by that definition, unique. And I thought it was something very special in that way. I mean, the script itself also was a beautiful thing to read. Barry's writing is sort of, you know, 
not to gush too much, but he's just an amazing writer, and he his scripts read like novels. They're just like kind of not only just very well written, but something that quite is impactful emotionally as you as you read them. So, on that note, I guess you're right. I guess I did. I will say it was something special. I did go. I did go to Miami thinking this is different than other things before. But, you know, that isn't to say I, I thought we'd be at the Oscars in, in 18 months either. Yeah. Uh, I just thought I was walking into something that was going to be very important for me. Which, obviously, I feel like if you knew it was going to, if you ever, if anyone ever knew a successful thing was going to be as successful yeah. as it was, they'd second guess every, every Oh, completely. It'd be yeah. a different movie. I mean, we were so, I mean, we were crazy kids running around Miami, <laughs> <laughs> you know, doing things that no one in their right mind would be doing, should be doing. I mean, and I think... <laughs> A lot of the crew on that set, as much as they were very supportive uh, uh, throughout, I'm sure looked at us like, "What? No, <laughs> no, we're not doing that. We're not going there. We're not putting. Uh, we're not going into the water like that, or whatever it might be." Yeah. Um, there was a lot of that, but anyway. What can you say about the way you and Barry collaborate with one mm. another? Like, what what is that relationship, and maybe how is it different from mm. when you've worked with other directors? Yeah, I think there's something unique about when you when you learn a language for the first time, whether that's the English language, French, Spanish, or film, mm-hmm. you develop a vernacular within that. You know, if you're from Brooklyn, you speak like you're from Brooklyn. If you speak, if you grew up in the Valley in California, you speak a certain way. Um, I think if you learn the language of cinema at the same time, watching the same films, referencing the same references, uh, making the same mistakes together, learning from them, it just, it just, you know, it's like speaking with your friend mm-hmm. that you've known since you were eight. Um, I think there's something about learning the craft together that just makes any, whether it's a friendship or a creative relationship. And for Barry, it's both of that, both of those things. Um, it's, it's something that I just think is unique to say the least. Um, and I guess you could sort of say it's somewhat effortless, I guess on some level, that's not to say we don't argue, we don't disagree, we do it constantly, actually, in fact, but it's all within those sort of subtleties mm-hmm. of language. And so I think that's somewhat different. Um, we don't talk a lot, to be perfectly honest. We just end up going out there and doing. I was thinking about this because I'm sort of in between, in, in the middle of a project with Barry right now. I'm sort of on a hiatus in, on a TV series that we're sort of halfway through at the moment. And this has been different than any other experience, but one thing that seems constant through all these different things we keep doing is our, I would say, and it's something I guess we, to your point, what you're referencing is what's unique about it. I don't think I'm uh, in any other, uh, within any other dynamic as flexible and interested in being flexible and interested in throwing out the plan and diving into something totally unique and different on a day. I think with Barry, it's a lot like playing jazz, just to be kind of cheesy for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're kind of just riffing all day long is what, what that experience is like. You can ask the editors, like, no one take is like another one. We'll do something we're quite proud of, and we'll never do it again. <laughs> we'll move the camera differently on take four than it was on take five. And is there, uh, is there an intention behind doing it like that? Is I think Barry is someone who believes in a moment is precious and it's never going to happen again. So don't try again. <laughs> really? Yeah. So like between take one and take two, will he yeah. be like, okay, actually, I'll, you know, instead of following him, I want you to lead him in this shot. hundred percent. Like he'll just, he'll just give you a different, a different take on it. And I have to just adapt right away and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it drives our dolly grips nuts. It drives our camera systems nuts. Uh, it, it drives, I mean, right now when I show where we're using, 
you know, lots of, lots of sort of high powered equipment, technocranes and all different things. And those are complicated tools that take a lot of nuance. So it drives them crazy to no end that we'll, we'll on take three, nail it. And he'll go, great. Okay, cool. And now this time what I want you to do is (laughs) really totally. Yeah. And it's fun. And then I think, I think I've let go of, uh, you know, I used to sort of somewhat have frustrations about that a little bit, to be honest with you, and sort of feel like, oh, man, I, I, can't we just do it even better or can't we even get it more precise? And I've let that come go completely now. And I'm just sort of like, OK, yeah, let's do something different. And I've quickly get on the headsets to the guys and describe a different thing that we'll do on a different queue just to try to prepare them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, you know, we'll just try something different. And there are moments, I'm sure, I, I hope anyway, that are, that are going to make the edit that are, you know, absolutely found in that process. I mean, he's such a sculptor in that way. And I think he'll, you know, he'll walk onto a set, watch the actors do something that is unplanned and completely change the way we'll approach that scene that day. So not to get too granular about sure. it, but like how many takes of a thing will you tend to do? And mm-hmm. assuming that each one is a little different. I think it's it's hard to define that for sure. Obviously, it changes on the day's schedule, but I think we're he's probably somewhere in the realm between like five and eight take kind of guy. So kind of a normal, yeah, not, not, not an crazy, not not a David Fincher no, no, level of all. takes. No, 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 not at all, not at all. I mean, and usually I take three or four. It's the best that's going to be, and we you know we do a few more to try a few ideas, and then he'll just say, "Oh, it's fine. I'll take four. We'll go on." So. Uh, <laughs> Nerdy question here, though. Like sure. when you say he's changing it up every time, so let yeah. I'm, hypothetically you've done eight, eight takes of sure. of whatever scene. Mm. When you when you go to see an edit of the film or you go to see the final yeah. f- film, do you find that it tends to be because usually it's like on on an, on a regular thing, it's like well the last take uh-huh. was maybe the the safety, so uh-huh. it's the last one or the second to last one because uh-huh. you're ready to move on, and those yeah. are those are the ones. But like, how likely would it be that it, you know you did eight takes and you went with take three? I think it's likely. So, so, yeah. so like he's just kind of creating like a palette of different yeah. moments yeah. that he can kind of pick out of. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think he's sculpting on set and and giving him the, the clay to sculpt again in the edit mm-hmm. and, and try different things and change the tone of something that realized didn't quite work on set. He thought it was great on the, in the edit. It, it didn't quite function the way we all thought it would. And now he has different material to sort of go back and say, well, this now let's place this back in there in a way that maybe wasn't understood before. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's a little, that's unconventional. Yeah. I mean, he's, and, I, and I, I think it's some, it's somewhat terrifying. Um, Does it eat up a lot of time relighting where it's like, okay, now we're going to come in from this side on, on the same thing or, <laughs> or do you just kind of like to. stick to the same lighting and like, Hey, let's just shoot this side out first. It used to when I was <clears throat> not as good mm-hmm. and working with sort of less flexible tools. And what I mean by that is when we first started, we were doing movies, the first one talking about the HVX 200 and the Red Rock adapter and that thing rated at 50 ASA. By the time you put all those things oh, together, yeah. you know, we have a light. It's a little front heavy. In it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's a light like three, three feet from the actor's face because we need the stop and whatever it might be. And now we're working with tam- cameras that are a lot more light sensitive and, you know, we're bigger sources further away through windows, et cetera. And at this point now, I mean, I'm very, very, very rarely will have more than one light on the set inside the room. Or really? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll have none. Um, and so that's when he loves it. He loves those days because now it's like, you want to turn around and we'll just turn, well, let's just turn around then. 
So that's that's some chivo kind of stuff there because <laughs> because to me like those movies look very lit like they're yeah. so is it about like okay well we're waiting for the like we're outside and we're waiting mm. for the light to be exactly perfect and then we're going to do it a bunch of times I wish we had the luxury I mean we don't shoot films from I mean we were lucky on on uh, Beale Street we shot that for thirty five days Moonlight was twenty five days mm-hmm. we have short schedules so by no means are we the kind of people that you know, have the luxury of sort of, oh yeah, let's just wait a few more hours and do it then. Uh, No, and that's sort of, it's interesting. What I like about Moonlight, for example, you bring that up a little bit is Moonlight is full of really stark, high contrast, noon day exteriors. Uh But it's sort of what works about it too, I think. Um, There's not a lot of sunsets in Moonlight, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not a lot of sunsets. There's maybe one or two in, in Beale Street, but we sort of tend to embrace some of that harshness actually and let it work for us and just sort of find camera angles that can function within it that aren't just sort of, you know, aggressive and, and gamble with weather. <laughs> um, well, but shooting in Florida too, and sure. I say this is someone who's shot more yeah. than a few things in Florida, you got yeah. clouds that are yeah. coming in and going out. And so yes. like, right. so continuity becomes a frigging nightmare. It does, but we, but we also shoot so quickly. And that's something I think actually oddly enough, both he and I like quite a lot. I do like a lot of pace to the set. And I do like moving fast. It does something, I think, to the creative process that I really actually enjoy. I'm not one of the DPs that likes to sort of bring the small flags out and put it you know, a little closer to the subject or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of like the looseness and quickness of, okay, get in there. What works, what doesn't. Let's adjust the camera angle a little bit to compensate for something else. But speed is something I quite like. So we tend to just walk into a space if it's sunny get in there and move you know hopefully wrap before it gets to change on us Mm -hmm. yeah anyway before 3 p.m before 3 p.m when it starts to get torrential (laughs) (laughs) Are are you rocking multiple cameras usually uh moonlight was single camera beale street was two Mm -hmm. uh the one we're doing now is again two he seems to like two we're doing a lot of two now which is sort of interesting uh, but, you know, the second camera is not playing all the time. Um, it plays sometimes, and it, we're not the kind of guys that are doing, you know, mediums and tight on the same act at the same time and, okay, let's turn the room around. We're mm-hmm. trying. We're definitely utilizing that second camera as, as something different, the, a bit more functional that isn't just sort of a wide and tight or, you know, a wide and something else. And when not, we're, you know, acting as if it's a single camera show. So mm-hmm. it's a hybrid. I, I wouldn't say we – I wouldn't say the second camera is working more than – 65% of the time. Oh, really? So it's, it's, it's not always on. Yeah. Do you tend to, when you're in single camera mode, do you tend to operate or are you in a video village? On Beale Street, I was in a video village with the exception of, I think, four or five shots, something like that. And then on Moonlight, I did all of it. On this show, I'm operating a camera and I have a Steadicam B camera operator. So I always wonder about this. When, yeah. you're, when you're the DP yeah. and you're operating a camera, are you, are you just trusting that the direct like are you looking at a lot of playback i do oh uh, yeah okay. yeah i do i do if initially uh, we're now working with someone that we really love um who's doing a great job and sort of at this point now he's been on for a few weeks and he just kind of effortlessly fell into the fold of the language we like to use mm-hmm. and i don't ever watch playback anymore i did for initially i have a little i you know i have a little station for myself and i on that i have a little atmos recorder I can go between takes and quickly just scroll oh, okay. back and, and watch B camera that, uh, and I, I did that for a little while just to sort of make sure we're in good spaces and, and doing, doing things that are functional and look like the same movie. And I think it, very quickly I realized we were, and I just, you know, kind of at this point now, you know, fully trust him at this point. So 
I feel like your stuff has like a lot of room for the actors to work and and you're sort of underscoring it by saying you don't get in there like the actors aren't having to like walk through an obstacle course on your set (laughs) like if they suddenly just you know if they have a spontaneous moment you're able to follow them yeah is that part of kind of the design of how you go about is is that uh, maybe not even design but is that like part of the philosophy by which you operate yeah it very much is I'll give you an example. There's a scene in Moonlight where an uh, adult black is talking to his mom at the sort of women's home that she's staying in, and they're having a dialogue around the, uh, across the table from one another. And um, at some point, unplanned, there's a hug that happens, and it's in the film. And it the actors just decided to do it. And it got... Didn't tell you. Didn't tell anyone. Right. Um, and they, I don't think they knew they weren't yeah. they weren't aware until it happened. And it was just, just a spontaneous. Like, they didn't decide to do it like offset. And no, then no, do exactly. It. And so I reacted immediately, and I just f- pushed the camera closer and found a gap between their arms, and I found Naomi Harris's face sort of enveloped in this large man's mm-hmm. embrace. And I was only able to do that because I didn't have a lot of stuff around. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was just an example of sort of things I love. Because I love as an operator and slash DP uh, reacting. It's a wonderful thing that you get to do is wit- be the first thing to witness these performances. And you're so intimately there with them. And if you can engage in a, in a real emotional way, what happens is you start to want to react. And you want to, uh, uh, I think become the third party to a conversation and um for me what that means is i want that well now i want to pan to the other actor real quick to see what they're doing and Mm -hmm. there's and i and and i want it's it's sort of a need and a necessity and a feeling that is somewhat more powerful than well i wish there was a little more fill light on that person's face (laughs) (laughs) and so i let go of that other thing because i have this need and want to see something else in that very fleeting moment. Uh, and if you're a beat behind because you needed to move your body as if you're handheld into a position that got around a flag or a stand or something, well, it's sort of the moment's lost. And so for me, I try to light in ways where I give myself, you know, even though it's maybe it's, I'm setting up for like a medium close on a certain character, I might have a couple things in my head where in, in this on this line of dialogue or in this emotional beat, I might protect myself to pan over to someone else or to pull back wide physically or whatever it might be because I, th- I think there's value to that. And if I'm listening and, 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 and sort of engaged with the performance that's happening in front of me, I can react in ways that I hope anyway are telling the story in a more sort of, I don't know what, truthful, you could say, or, or immediate uh, uh, fashion. Well, it's almost a documentary kind of an instinct. It is, which is interesting because I don't really do docs. I, I've not. I've done a couple. I've done a few. I don't come from that world, but I do sort of like the philosophies behind documentary work. You know, as a as an operator within documentary, you're so active in telling. If you're doing verite anyway, telling those stories and the choices you're making on the fly, as you react to a, a real moment that's happening, are just part and parcel to to the storytelling in a, in a serious, serious way. And I love bringing that same dynamic to a narrative process. Um, I think my hope is, and I think what I'm trying to do anyway, is um, engage the audience in a real sense that they believe the moments are real. And if I'm, you know, if the lighting's too perfect or too manicured or whatever it might be, and the and the camera seems so stilted and, and, and defined, I sort of feel like I might be losing a little bit of that engagement that's on some level. Hmm. No, that's interesting. It's a theory I have anyway. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so I feel like I have to ask uh-huh. because, you know, Moonlight went on to win Best Picture, but famously the wrong movie was announced first. <laughs> yeah. What were you in the room when that happened? I was. Yeah. What was. was that like? Um, it was pretty weird. It was it was strange and it was confusing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's odd. You know, those campaigns are so strange, first of all. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but what what is true about them is you get to know all the people that you're campaigning with. And we knew the La, La Land folks really well throughout through that process. We would see them in every junket. And I got to know Linus really well. Uh, Linus Sangren, the DP from uh, La, La Land, is a great guy. It's uh, a beautiful film. Beautiful film. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Linus, yeah. Linus is lovely. And uh, I never met him before, but during that time, we got to know each other. And I just remember my, my memory of it is walking on that stage after we sort of both parties are up there and giving Linus a big hug, which I don't know why, but it just I felt like I had to jump on him for a second. <laughs> uh, it just felt so strange. I think we were both confused. I think it was all very bizarre. Anyway, so I don't know. I don't have much to say besides that. But otherwise, it was just confusing and weird. And it was definitely upsetting to some people. Well, it was, um, an, it was an awkward moment of broadcasting. But I can tell you, like, from watching it from the yeah. safety of my home, I, uh, it was like, wow, <laughs> something real just happened Drama, on the Oscars. I know. Like, the yeah. Oscars feels like such a choreographed thing. Yes, and, then, yeah. and then suddenly it's like, oh, my God, that's yeah. real emotion. And people are yeah, freaking out. And it's yeah. odd. And that was cool. That was cool. I, I will say one thing about it, actually. You're on stage. You're on the, in the audience. They're on stage accepting the award. And you can tell something's wrong because what's happening sort of off in the wings, I'm sure all the cameras are focused on the podium, but off to the side, coming in and out onto the stage, going backstage, are men in suits with Uh earwigs in, with their fingers in the ear, running out, looking out at the audience, (laughs) and running back in. And it happened two or three times, I think. And to be honest with you, I thought there was something like very dangerous was about to happen. Oh no! <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that would freak me out if I saw that. Today. If you see like dudes yeah. in suits with their fingers in their ear, with earwigs hanging down, and they're freaking out and they're looking concerned, that's that nice t- to know that they took that that seriously. Sure. Um, obviously, it was the guy with the envelope mix up, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and not like some you know FBI agent uh, about to call a bomb scare or something like that. But nevertheless, uh, that was where my head went first, and then it became clear oh this is something different and when that got announced and you mm. you know i mean maybe not that instant but like you know in the ensuing days weeks mm. how how did it change your life that you <laughs> shot the best picture winner i don't know that it changed all that much to be perfectly honest i mean i think what happens more, is you get a more lot or less of attention. than the spirit award <laughs> you get a lot of attention but that attention is fleeting which is good i think actually I, I think your name gets tossed around in circles that, that it otherwise wasn't. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I don't know. Like, I still went to, I still, you know, I, I will say this. I think prior to that moment, I did not have, I, I've been wanting to get my foot in the commercial door for a while. Yeah. Doing commercials. And I was having a harder time. That opened that door. I don't know that it did a whole lot for me narratively, though. I think when, like, you look at Moonlight, we all, I love it. I'm very proud of it. But it still looks, as it should, like a small, low-budget, independent American film. Yeah. Um, it looks and, and it, feels that way, and that's why it works. It's great for that. Yeah. But it doesn't, I don't know that that movie necessarily looks so impressive that, like, all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to shoot the next James Bond movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, rightfully so. I don't think I would have been ready for that, obviously. So my, my point is, I, I still think there was a very natural progression to things, and I think that's true for everyone's career 
if they're you know chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, you start to open up the rock, so to speak, and things start to open up for you. But it it, it is, I would argue, the progression still is quite natural. And it wasn't, <clears throat> pardon me, some crazy like overnight like all of a sudden I'm in the Hollywood Hills doing you know whatever like <laughs> you know buying houses with with pools like that's not that does not did not happen yeah <laughs> you know what I mean so I think in, yeah it was a natural progression still from that to Beale Street a little bit more money a little bit more time same director lucky enough to have that relationship continue and I think the truth is we're still doing that today I mean like I said in the middle of the TV show right now with Barry and again just another progression from what we've come from well, let's let's talk a little bit more about if Beale Street could talk. Mm. What were the upgrades from working on uh, on mm. Moonlight? Like where where I mean, I know yeah. you, said you had a little bit more time, a little bit more money. Yeah. How different was it walking in? I mean, like, d- did the crew treat you guys differently now that you you had just won <laughs> the Oscar? I think in I think it's interesting. Uh, sure, on some level, yes. Initially, I'd say that's true, but when you work with Barry. I think, which is what something that I think I love about working with him is there's still some staples to his process that probably will never change, and hopefully they don't. And that's his sort of wild, crazy energy and mm-hmm. and 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 whimsical decision making that is sort of on the fly and and in the moment and paying attention to the story and beat and the emotional core of a, of a of a scene. Which I think when you know, sure, do you have some upgrade from you know a whether it's tools or a crew that's you know larger or you know more supported in some fashion yeah you you have those things and initially they thought oh cool we're working with like award-winning people this is a great project but we you show up on set and there's still like a couple of weird guys running around like Perry and I <laughs> doing really bizarre things um having the actors look into the lens and perform scenes you know asking to do some crazy complicated take very quickly so you know we're we're still the same people we always were and I think any sort of expectation of working with like I guess in a what quote quote award-winning filmmaking group I think quickly goes away if you're if you're watching us because the truth is we're just probably the same goofy kids we were when we were in Tallahassee, Florida doing films <laughs> then. I don't think a lot, to be honest with you, I don't think a lot's changed. I think we still sort of make choices in the same way. I think we still talk the same way. I think we still are willing to throw away the plan or try something different. And I think that's that core of that stems from that early, those early, early days. Now, when you work with other directors, mm. is there anything you take from the process of working with Barry Jenkins or what is your process mm. like when you're working with other directors? Yeah, I th- it's definitely different, as it should be. You know, I think I think I try my best to very quickly, as, f- as fast as I can, come to understand my role within a new relationship. Certain people want different things from me that other people don't. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of a DP. One thing I love about being a DP is it changes every single time. And I think it's not it's so undefined what that role is. Some people storyboard every th- single thing, and all you are kind of doing is putting the camera in the right space with the right lens and lighting. And some people want you to be much more than that. They want you to sort of design camera movement and and be more engaged in helping them find a visual language. So I think there's such a spectrum, and that's what's lovely about it. So I I quickly try my best to find out what they're looking for me for. Mm -hmm. And I think it ranges. I mean, you know, I've worked with people that just kind of want me to light a scene, and that's cool. And I've worked with some people that, you know, want to discover a new visual language together and, and, and everything in between. 
So I, I kind of want to go deeper in, into Beale Street sure, and sure. just kind of talk about the the process of yeah. like what was the visual language that you found? Yeah. Like what are some of the yeah. some of your processes and creative uh, discoveries while you were making that? I think it stems from uh, initially the James Baldwin novel and more even more broadly than that, the language of James Baldwin as a writer, I think was something that weighed heavily on my mind. I can, I'm sure Barry's mind as well as to how to best sort of communicate Mr. Baldwin's voice onto the screen. How would you typify that voice? It is this wonderful, lovely balance of at the, in, in the same sentence, in the same moment, having the most amazing amount of strength and at the, at the same time, like this whimsical lyricism. That's how I think about his, mm-hmm. his, his, his writing. Uh, and, and I would say that's true for all of his, just, just his voice generally. Even when he speaks, I mean, hearing him, him, his public speaking is the same way to me. He has this like lovely has a humor, has a powerfulness, an elegance, and a specificity. And so the way I thought about that and how I interpreted that, I hoped to interpret that onto the screen, primarily was uh, the first way we did it was to do to make a choice about camera format. The Lexus Alexis 65 had come out about a year, well, a few years earlier, but become more popular about a year earlier. And it was my first thought for, for this story was to find a format that had something to do and to say something about that kind of language. Mm-hmm. Um, the large format being, <clears throat> I thought, in the way I would interpret it, the large format being the power, but also the resolution being the subtlety. And just mm-hmm. sort of how to sort of define both those things in the same moment for me was choosing the right format. And that was the Alexa 65. The other thing was the era, the 70s. We didn't necessarily want the film to look like it was made in the 70s. It wasn't, look, wasn't meant to look like a Cassavetes film or something of that ilk. But we wanted to sort of hint at it. And the way we did that was through choosing the Airy DNA set, which has this sort of vintage quality. I think anyway, there's sort of the artifacting, the way the bokeh plays, the lenses, the, fl- the lenses. Yeah. Sorry, the the, the the DNA lens is correct. Yeah, at the same time, it's it's still a sharp lens, and so there's still some sharpness to it to sort of fun- work more functionally with a 65 and not sort of dumb it down too far. And so that's sort of where we sort of felt the sweet spot was was that hinting at the era with the lenses, hinting at the powerfulness with the optics and the format and things like that. Did you do a lot of testing? Yes, we did. And the way Barry does testing is interesting. We, we try to do now is more or less shoot a short dock <laughs> with a few lens sets at the same time. And we'll, you know, uh, it's a really cool way of trying things out because it's sort of, you're not in a dark studio with a, you know, a three point light setup and just flopping lenses in between. We're out in the real world uh, at a real location, seeing how the camera functions with different lenses in real environments and sort of on, on faces and things like that. So what was the documentary? It's not out. I mean, I, I wish it, I wish you would make it. I, I mean, want to know. Yeah. What were you making a documentary about? It was about a couple of his friends talking about their relationship. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I, That's a brilliant idea for a test, though, because it, it's just a real world kind of, you know, yeah. just see how it functions in an, in an environment where you're actually making. Something. Exactly. Right. And so the, so it's fun. You know, I, I think it's a great as well. And it, it's somewhat challenging because all of a sudden you're testing things. You wish you had more nuance to sort of test with. However, I think you gain a lot more from just being in the real world and yeah. real environments. So in uh, any case, we tested a few different lenses, but it was all in the 65 system. Very quickly, we bought into that choice. It was very clear, I think, really fast that that was the idea. And then the idea after that was just, okay, which lens set works best with us? And uh, in the end, we chose, we, I think we tested the 
prime D- the prime 65s the vintage 765s and the dnas and in the end just does the dnas so are you able to talk about the tv project that you're working with him on uh, yeah conceptually i mean uh yeah it's an amazon series it's called the underground railroad from the book the underground railroad uh by colston whitehead and it's a beautiful novel that we're trying very hard to adapt properly to the screen and uh we're about halfway through uh we've been shooting in savannah for a long time and now we're moving to atlanta Nice. Yeah. Savannah's beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Exactly. And so you're actually not terribly far from where you guys went to school. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's the South. You know, we've basically been sweating and in permanent <laughs> uh, dampness for the last number of months. And uh, I'm here in L.A. for the, the, the week of hiatus to just dry out for a minute before I, before I go back. <laughs> and when you're when you're working on an adaptation like that, mm. um, do you as your blueprint rely mostly on the script or do you also go back and read the book and especially given yeah. your relationship with Barry Jenkins yeah. uh, do you guys talk about stuff that maybe like would you ever say well such and such happens in the book oh know? definitely really oh absolutely yeah 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 I mean, because we'll try to find ways you know that you know if it doesn't quite make it into the screenplay for a variety of reasons but maybe there's a subtle way to hint at it visually a, a moment or a reference that is in the book we'll try to do things like that so yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of the book, and uh, definitely I've, the first thing I did was read read it uh, when I knew Barry was sort of coming to adapt it. What are your feelings about going from making features, you know, mm. which are two-ish hour yeah. things, to making a series? It's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy exhausting, and this is unique. I mean, it's not often. There's been a number of occasions this has happened in, you know, where a director is directing all episodes and the DP is doing all the episodes. What, what kind of what kind of prep? What kind of shoot schedules? Yeah, I mean it's tough. I think we're doing. You know, I was I've been prepping since April, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh-huh. uh, and really a soft prep before that. We started shooting in I think August. August in in Georgia. I know. I know. Oh I man. Know, I know. I know. <laughs> it's like 110 degrees and humid. You know, and I thought Savannah being on the coast would be cooler. It's not. Savannah's actually uh-huh. muggier. It's rougher. Any case, uh, so it's been a long haul, and I and and I think. The challenge for us is to just keep the energy up mm-hmm. and and um, keep each other's spirits up and really be a cheerleaders for each other and support one another. Through the process. And hydrate. And hydrate. Do you have those? I remember shooting in Florida. Uh, we had an AD who would get like a bucket uh-huh. uh, and, and she would put like ice water and sea breeze in it and yeah. put, and put yeah, like yeah, uh, bandanas and yes. you just put them around your neck and it would keep you a little cooler. There's a lot of tricks to the trade and that's one of them. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, the trouble is they only work for a few minutes and then you're still just terribly hot. And then you, you smell like a teenager trying to get over your pimples because you just smell like sea breeze all day that's true uh but um but you know i i think i think it's the it's been challenging no doubt about it um i'm so far very very proud of it and uh i can't wait to have it come out for people to see but you know it's something i think would be very i, I think will be very special for sure Ilya, do you have any other questions you want to ask? Uh, I got a couple, actually. Yeah, go for it, please. I'm uh, going to hand the microphone over to our co-host, Ilya Friedman. I don't always jump in just like this, but uh, since you were here and I sure. and uh, I had a couple of thoughts, I mm. wanted to talk a little bit. I know uh, congratulations on becoming uh, one of the newest members of ASC. Oh, thank you very much. That, uh, that just happened, I think, in the last yeah, six months or so. Did. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's new. So uh, mm. I, it might be a little bit soon to say how that might I- impact your mm. uh, job opportunities or careers or stuff like that. But sure. uh, how do you like being part of the club? <laughs> is, that, is that fun? You like going to the clubhouse and doing the events and stuff? Is you know, that... I, yeah. It's, well, it's 
so new that I haven't. It's funny. It, it's not only so new. It happened when I was in prep in Savannah. So you you haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, prior to the uh, being being included into the club, I, I've you know gone to the ASC awards and things like that and different events at the clubhouse before as a non-member. And you know, it's been a sort of a group of people that I've always you know wanted to be a part of at some point in my life. And I feel very lucky to to have gotten into it at, at this point in my career. And yeah, very much looking forward to. It getting back into town and engaging with that group and things like that. Well, well definitely when you have a little bit of downtime, there, <laughs> there's definitely some ways that you can, you can fill the gaps uh, with, with, you know, and nerding yeah. out with a bunch of other nerds about cameras and lenses. And no, it's fun. It's, stuff, you know, so. I mean, being, uh, it's, we don't get to talk to each other very often as DPs do and having a place to discuss ideas. It's a huge sort of help in, in aiding new ideas, future concepts of storytelling and things like that are in, in technical stuff as well. So, you know, it's, I'm very, very excited about it, obviously. And, uh, can only imagine it will, you know, benefit sort of uh, future projects and, you know, new ideas. Uh, I also want to, uh, I don't think that you brought up Kevin Smith once. And I know that you've done <laughs> oh, a bunch yeah. of work with Kevin Smith. It's I like, two films, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to like, you know, certainly we are not avoiding talking about Kevin Smith, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to imagine I that love the, Ke- about Kevin. the Kevin Smith experience has got to be a little bit different than the Barry Jenkins experience. It's very, very different. <laughs> You're right. It's a great time. First of all, I, I have nothing but lovely things to say about Kevin. He's the, one of the nicest men I've ever met and is incredibly supportive and of me. I was just, it was when he, that moment called to do Tusk, you know, it was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to come work with Kevin. That's crazy. And, um, you know, being a fan of, of all the early films, as, as a lot of people are, it was something that was a quick, easy thing to jump into. I didn't know him before that in any fashion. And I've just never been welcomed in uh, uh, into a space as much as, as Kevin welcomed me into his world, which I thought was just uh, just very giving and, 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 and very warm of him to do so. And uh, I think very quickly wanted a lot from me. I wanted to talk about story and, 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 uh, and all kinds of different things. And I think we kind of clicked pretty quickly. And Tusk was a wild one. It's a, it's a pretty wild film. And it's funny. People talk about, I, I get a, I, I've had a number of people just confused to no end that Tusk came out the same year as Moonlight and the same DP shot both films. Mm-hmm. And what I say to people was like, I actually shot Tusk before Moonlight and mm-hmm. I, Moonlight would not look like Moonlight does without having me shooting Tusk before that. I learned a lot on that show. Uh, a lot of, you know, technique and, and things I applied to Moonlight actually. And so as much as they're different looking and they, and they should be, they're different stories they're different, completely different kinds of films. Um, there's a lot in my mind in a technical way anyway for sure that is a very close bond between the two films actually which is weird to say but um, uh, it's sort of nuanced I guess and more geeky DP stuff but you know just whether it's the light we used on the beach in Moonlight and the the kind of rig and the size of light and distance to subject and all the different things were sort of things I learned on Tusk and how how to light a certain kind of skin color or whatever it is. I mean, I, I'd done a little bit of that, obviously, working with Barry before, but just sort of nuancey things that I, I then brought to Moonlight from working with Kevin. So, you know, as my, <laughs> I, I get a lot of people teasing me about that, which is sort of a funny thing for me because I actually think, in my mind, they're close, they're actually symbiotic in some ways. I think it's it's really interesting because there's a lot of different styles and there's a lot of different way that 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 people work 
in some ways, you got to prototype some of your looks, it sounds like, uh, shooting Tusk when you came to Moonlight. But that's kind of the amazing thing, actually, about being a DP is that you get to um, you get to work in a lot of movies. When you're a director, sometimes the gap between getting some, getting your last thing uh, you know seen and your next thing done can take a while. But as the DP, you get to work with many directors and you get to, to try different stuff. Well, that's what I said earlier. I mean, that's sort of what I love about this, because to me, it's about, you know, meeting different people and learning different people's worlds and funneling them into a screen, onto, onto a picture. It's the thing I love the most. I mean, I did a Guinness commercial, series of Guinness commercials a couple of years ago in Africa. And, I, you know, that was huge for me. I mean, it affected my life considerably in, in filmmaking terms and non-filmmaking terms. And that's the, that opportunity only came because I'm a cinematographer and I was invited into a space that I didn't know yet, was unfamiliar with. As welcomed into a space that, um, you know, I, I, I think for me had a huge impact on how culture finds its way onto the screen. And to me, I, I will say for, as a filmmaker, not even just to me a DP, but I, as, as I see what the value of film is in my mind is very much about culture and, uh, and about how people, I guess, uh, witness culture on screen. I mean, it's sort of how, that's at least how I, you know, we talked really about how I got into filmmaking that's one side of it, but my love of films is a whole other side of it. And I think, you know, looking back on the films that I remember as a child watching and having huge impacts, there were films about different cultures that I'd not know, I didn't know about that I just sort of was in awe of. And I think in my mind now, as I choose projects and work with different filmmakers and decide who I want to work with and things like that, oftentimes it has a lot to do with, you know, well, who is that person in, in real life? And, um, what can I learn from them, and, 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 and how do I relate to them in ways that I can hopefully interpret in a way on into lighting and camera movement and things like that. So um, anyway. That, that, that's a great answer. Um, yeah. Is there a particular genre that you are yet to work in that you mm. are really sort of chomping at the bit? Is there a type of project that you... Champing at the bit. Champing at the bit? It's not, the expression is champing at the bit. Go is on, that right? Go on, Elliot. I thought it was chomping. It's champing at the bit. Go ahead, Elliot. Oh Elia. my God! All right. Wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to Google this now. Now that you've corrected me. Uh, okay, champing, champing at the bit. The bit. Is, is is there is there uh, and if, and if there isn't uh, if there yeah. isn't if you feel like you've done it all then maybe uh, a director. I definitely have not done it all. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Um, all right. Well, I mean, uh, it, it could be a short form. It could be a large screen. It could be a big, it could be a, a, a genre of movies. Uh -huh, do you, uh -huh. you want to work in? I don't know. You you, you tell me. What are you jonesing for? <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny. My brain doesn't work like that in many ways. Um, there's a lot of things that I guess I've not tried a lot of yet. Sci-fi is one. I mean, I've done dramatic work, comedic work, kind of. But uh, I don't necessarily function like that. I don't know that I go home at night and just sort of wish wish someone would call with a science fiction piece for me. That's yeah. Bring on the World War II zombie movie. That's what <laughs> yeah. I want next. It <laughs> just isn't sort of how my brain works. I think for me, I'm looking for collaborators. Uh, that's that's how I've sort of come to value choices in that, in that sense and looking for people. I look for people, I think, more than anything else. And when I say that, I guess I mostly mean directors. Um, Is there a director that you uh, want, to, <laughs> want, want to name here? I, we'll cut this out if you, if you don't want to. But but if, if you, you know, here's an opportunity. If there's someone you've kind of like you haven't been able to reach. Oh, uh, that's so wanna, funny. Yeah. Uh, no, I won't say. No, there's a thousand, there's a thousand directors I would love to work with. Yeah. Um, 
you well, know more importantly who do you not want to work yeah, with yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good that's a better question though. <laughs> um no i i know we talked about it not a little bit of nauseam but i'm lucky to have barry as a collaborator and that's that's for me a really special one and one i feel very lucky to have at this moment in my career and hopefully continue to forever never never but you know i i do at the same time i'll also look for for new ones and i, I will say in the commercial space i've found some great ones that I, i've really you know clicked with and, and and hope to keep continue to collaborate with but yeah in the film world for sure there's lots there's lots of folks yeah that uh, and and you know what between barry and and kevin you've got you've got some really great people that you <laughs> that you're that you're doing work i feel with, like so. i've gotten lucky very much for sure yeah, uh, yeah well yeah. uh yeah. i don't think i have anything else so where where can people find you online i know you've got a uh, i know you've got a website Sure, I do. Uh, a, a website that I, I I think it's still up. I guess it's still up. It's up. I was just there. <laughs> Literally every DP we talk to is like, yeah, I haven't updated my, my website in four years. <laughs> Yours is relatively up to date. It's yeah. up to date. Yeah, yeah. It's on, I do a Squarespace now. Nice. So like I can, you know, I'm, not, I'm dumb enough to understand Squarespace and I can I can paste a copy link to a, a trailer here and there. Yeah. If you're listening, Squarespace, yeah. sponsor us. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Sorry. Uh, Nevertheless, no, I, just, I, I say I just say I, I can do some things on the internet and uh, that's one of them. So, um, so where can people find yeah. you? What's, what's so that URL? W World Wide Web. Uh, <laughs> on the information superhighway. <laughs> it's a series of tubes. Yes. Uh, JamesLaxton.com. And then uh, I guess I'm on Instagram. Although, again, don't I'm not super active on Instagram, but it's just James Laxton, I think. No, it's actually Mr. James Laxton. That's right. So, uh, well, thank you very much for coming out. It's, it's a, a pleasure. amazing conversation. Love your work. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. So thank you, James Laxton. It was awesome having you on here and uh, hope to bring you back when you have your next film going on. So, Ilya, it is time to pay dim bills. Yes, it is bill paying time. And again, our sponsor is the fantastic folks over at Aperture who That's make awesome. high quality LED lights. Uh, there is a very cool light that Aperture makes, and it is cool. It doesn't get very hot. It's called the MC. It's, I was going to ask. I was going to ask if that was a double entendre. It, it, it's a double intenuendo. Yes, it is <laughs> a double entendre. The the cool light. I love I love the callback to The Daily Show from like 1999. I'm so there. glad you went there with me. So. <laughs> okay, so uh, the Aperture MC has giant magnets on the back, which means you can stick it anywhere that's got steel, anywhere that's got metal. I can put, put it on, on my fridge and use it to hold up my kids' artwork. I, I am slightly ashamed to say this, but I used it to clean up a small child's vomit the other day in the middle of the night. So Your kid has magnetic vomit? No, no, but I was able to stick it to their bunk bed to clean up the... Oh, so you could see. I got could it. see. I'm like, <laughs> so. I'm like imagining, how do you clean up <laughs> no, vomit? With no, a... I happen to have it in my pocket and uh, my daughter... Uh, had a stomach bug and it was the middle of the night and so it was really really handy to stick it on the top part of the bunk bed to see the spill and not have to turn on the lights and everything else and I cleaned up vomit it's, it was not the intended use of this light this light is amazing that, that vomit <laughs> has never looked better there's no light that has ever hit that vomit that has been more attractive the aperture light costs 90 bucks that's 90 the, bucks that's the price is 90 dollars and it's incredibly bright it's rechargeable. It's dimmable. It's got different I mean, honestly, effects and things built into it. You just want it. to have that light in your kit because you never know when you're going to be like, oh, man, I wish I, I need a little bit of something. And a, and, and a $90 magnetic light is going to be the exact perfect solution. And it is a very, very high quality for that $90, too. It is a, a ridiculously high quality light. So this light is incredible. Of course, back ordered now everywhere. I would tell you, go to hotrodcameras.com and order it. 
but you're not going to receive it. You should order it anyway, because then when they come in, we will ship them to you. But right now, they are so popular, they are sold out. You might have to wait a couple of weeks to get one if uh, you place an order now. But I will tell you, they uh, there. If we don't have them, nobody got them because we bought a lot of them. Oh, nice. Hit us up for the Aperture MC. Very, very cool. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, <laughs> what is your short end for this week? Uh, my short end this week is Shot Deck. Shot Deck? What the hell is that? Shot Deck uh, was mentioned. Sorry, that sounded overly uh, like confrontational. I didn't really Whoa. mean it that way. Again, why are you so confrontational? The fuck is that? <laughs> Shot, tell me all about Shot Deck. Uh, Shot Deck actually was uh, previously mentioned in our uh, interview with Lawrence Scher, who's mm-hmm. in, involved in it. It's a very, uh, well, I'll just read the description. It says, Shot Deck is an invaluable time-saving resource and collaborative tool that makes life easier for anyone working in the film, media, and advertising industries. That's a, that's a bold claim. It is. Uh, it says, search our incredible library of meticulously tagged still images by film, title, keyword, location, color, or a dozen other criteria to quickly find the exact shots you need. Shots is in quotes. Then so create this is like for pre-visualization, like to put together. Well, a yeah, deck. a deck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then create decks of images that you use in presentations or share with your clients and crews. And you can register for a free beta account right now. And I'm at, seriously going to do that the second I get home. You should do that. Go to shotdeck.com. It says register for free beta account. You submit your information, and then uh, there's a little video you can watch that. Tells you all about them. Here, I'll just uh, hit play on it for a second. Maybe maybe we can use part of this audio. It might sound interesting. Shot Deck is a collaborative professional tool that helps people working in the film and advertising industries get inspired and easily create decks for every stage of a project, from pitch to prep to production. We are the largest library of high-definition, fully searchable movie images in the world. Each image is tagged in over 20 categories... You get the idea. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's tons of stuff on here. And they actually have a a shot here on the screen from Moonlight 2016. Genre, drama, uh, director, Barry Jenkins, cinematographer, James Laxton. And then it goes through and lists, you know, other important crew people. So you could like, like, let's say you were looking for stuff from from a specific DP. Correct. You you could pull up a bunch of their work, you know, if, if that was the kind of look you were going for. Exactly. And it says like tags, back facing camera, back to camera, head tilted, iconic shot, khaki pants, looking at ocean, looking out at ocean, ocean, ocean in background. And sure enough, it is this iconic shot. From I'm gonna make a deck that's nothing but khaki pants. <laughs> you know that would be a fun search term. I would like to see all the different khaki pa- pants here. I cannot wait for the Gap commercials that they use. That's so. pretty cool. No, that's that's an awesome tool, and I I mean seriously, I think that that's uh, that, that that's something we're gonna be using a lot. I see instant value in that. I I am an unrepentant user of Pinterest when I'm uh, pre visualizing something and putting together Pinterest boards to show people, and this is like that, but even more geared for what we're uh, for what we do. Exactly. All right. So, so Ben, what is your short end this week? Well, we had talked, I think it was in the last episode about how sometimes you get uh, stuck on a uh, premiere thing or after effects or whatever program you're working in. You yes. go to, you go to yes. YouTube and you look up, somebody's doing a tutorial. So, um, and then they have nine minutes of explaining how to open well, up the app, but yeah. I'm not talking about one of those people. Okay. So what ends up happening though, is like, you know, YouTube kind of goes, Oh, you like this. And then they just keep feeding you <laughs> 84 videos. other options of that. So one of the ones that I stumbled into is a, uh, Belgian, uh, group of f- young filmmakers, like late twenties, early thirties. And it's uh Cinecom and you can actually find their website at cinecom.net. 
and uh, they do like they're they're kind of entertaining. I shouldn't say they're kind of entertaining. They're they very, are entertaining. They're very entertaining. They're they're like a bunch of fun young uh, guys. It is all guys, <laughs> um, but uh, like they'll do things where they uh, find an iconic shot in a music video and figure out how to replicate it. They seem to have a pretty nice studio and 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 lots of gear. And they and they will do tutorials on After Effects or Premiere. They do a lot of like really cool Premiere stuff, like effects you can do without even leaving Premiere. But then they they go into into further depth. And I've found their stuff interesting enough that even when I'm not looking for a specific tutorial, like I went ahead and subscribed to their channel and I watched their new videos and I enjoy their interesting Belgian accents. You and 1.74 million other people. Yeah, they got a lot of subscribers. They look yeah. very popular. I think that they do really interesting stuff. I mean, a lot of times I look at these things and I'm like, I, I wish that somebody like this would take this talent and just go make movies. Like, I just want to see them make movies instead of telling me how to do stuff. But, and I don't, for all I know, they are doing that. I hope they're doing that because they're a very talented group of filmmakers. They are not afraid to use diagonal wipes either. Uh, they are definitely not afraid of diagonal wipes. No, but I think I think that they're really uh, they're really talented and interesting, and they make the videos engaging, which is to me ninety percent of the the struggle. It's what I've always uh, given Andrew Kramer a lot of credit for doing well. And uh, we talked about corridor crew on here. Corridor crew they don't do tutorials as such. They they just kind of tackle giant challenges. But I find uh, when people do that stuff, I find it way more inspirational. And uh, and so I found some inspiration and. In these guys, and uh, it's on YouTube. It's free. Check it out. Nice. You're going to have to sit through some Storyblocks commercials, but, you know, worse could happen. I will totally check it out. Oh, yeah, they're using some uh, footage from the Avengers EPK here, and I think they're going to should do, like, a, uh, a tutorial. Look at that. Like, it looks pretty cool. I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. They're good guys. Anyway, so uh, check out. I, I don't know them at all, but check out Cinecom.net on, uh, on YouTube. All right. So, Ben, that does it. That's that's another end of another show. Yet another show. I think we're closing in on 100 very soon. You yeah. know what I realized we didn't do last time and we really need to do. We're remiss. We didn't tell people, please write to us. Please email us. We're, we're attention starved and lonely. We, you need to, to reach out to us and, you know, give yeah. our lives meaning. No, I, if you have comments, criticisms, any of those things. Hit us up. You and, want a T-shirt? And, and, you want a hat? And, and, yeah, and, and yeah. go on on iTunes and write a comment and give us a, a review and give give us a rating, even if you hate us, even if you don't like us. We'll we'll we'll, we'll take it. We'll take we'll, it. We'll, we'll take it. I don't want to take it, but I will. I will I'll, take it. I'll take it. I I need the criticism. <laughs> that's how I get better at shit. That, that's true. You know, if if uh, if you get criticized, there's 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 room to improve. So, Ilya, who do we need to thank for this week's fine episode? Nobody. What we need to do, and we forgot to, is tell people where they can find you. Oh, uh, go to BenRockOnline.com. That's the best place you can ever find me, and you'll find all of my socials there. Social medias, I mean, not social security card. Uh, yeah, That'd be and, weird if I just put my social security. Card yeah, on. that would that would be like that LifeLock commercial where yeah. that guy got his identity stolen twenty three times. If, and, if I left it up on my website, I'm just asking for trouble. That, that's pretty much it. That guy hired a billboard and drove around like you know <laughs> the country and then got his identity stolen. Anyway, yeah, so true yeah, story. go to Ben Rock Online. You'll find my uh, Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. You name it. Uh, you Vimeo. Could, you could find me on the Instagram at Ilya Friedman. You can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn at Ilya Friedman. But of course, the easiest place to probably find me, uh, at least Monday through Friday, is at Hot Rod Cameras. Literally, physically, come to Hot Rod Cameras and uh, find Ilya, ask for Ilya, and then demand your T-shirt. That's that you will be demand. Some, you, in fact, be kind of a douche about it. Oh man, you you know someone will do that now. Please. 
I'm you're, not, I don't you're not going to be here. You don't, you don't have to. I absolutely won't be here. So it's fine. You know, if you're really douchey, you won't get the shirt. That's that, true. That, that's just it's not it's not going to happen. Be a douche. Don't, don't be a douche. That's terrible. Anyway, so you're, you're, you're gonna, next you're going to say and take up two spots in the parking lot. Do just, it. Or maybe three. Just three. Whatever, yeah. yeah. Park, just, park just wrong. To park in the handicap spot. There just, you, you know, just, you know. Yeah. I agree with all in that. Your Bentley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben. Now let, let's let's thank some people. Let's thank uh, Alana Cody. Alana Cody, without whom we would not be uh, uh, as prolific, nearly as prolific as we are. We're getting some amazing interviews. We have some amazing shows coming oh up. Oh, my God. You think it's been good so far? You you ain't seen nothing yet. We got so much good stuff coming up. I can't uh, wait. So, yeah, and that is all on Alana for busting her ass and uh, getting us out there. We also want to thank uh, Kay's Alatrachi. Kay's maybe listening. There's Probably some, some percentage yeah. chance that he's uh, yeah. checking this out. I'm going to say 4% this time. He, he yeah. created all the music that you uh, h- heard in, uh, in, in the entire episode. And then also, while he was doing it, he directed six features and color corrected nine others and then did uh, you know a bunch of stuff in Houdini that I don't even understand. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's it's my plan to have him on the podcast at some point. We totally have to have him on the podcast. And th- that'll be really fun for the people who you listen to these 70 episodes of us talking about Kays. You want to know something about Kays Alatraxi that I've never mentioned? He's got big dogs. Well, he does have big dogs, but no. He built the computer that I edited most of the episodes on before we had first Mike Wilbanks and then Ben Katz. <laughs> there but is nothing this man He can. literally <laughs> built my computer. It's a Hackintosh, and I'm oh. still using it. <laughs> is he uh, Is he also like uh, doing some major construction project right now, too, like pouring cement? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever he does it definitely requires coding and math, so <laughs> I don't know how much of that goes into concrete. And then lastly, we want to thank uh, Ben Katz, our editor, who uh, we really hamstrung today with uh, yeah. the the, wow. weir- the most random commercial read that I've, I think we've ever done. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it'll make this episode? Probably not. <laughs> it, if you're still sitting there thinking, I can't believe they left that in the commercial, then it made then it. Then it made it. Yes, that's exactly what happened. If you go, that didn't seem that weird, <laughs> then, then Ben did his job. <laughs> he, made, he made sure to protect us and did not uh, steer us wrong and let us harm ourselves with that terrible well you know what and here it is it could still be in this episode so it might not be terrible it may be brilliant may and we the, are just too close it, to it it could I can't have been our have, best work ever it, it might be it might. anyway well thanks again Ben and uh, thank you for listening to us and we will see you on the next episode of the Cinematography Podcast next week next week this has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.